Hello, I'm Evans Maragis, the Harry T. Wilkes Artistic Director for Cincinnati Opera. My guest is countertenor Anthony Rothcostanzo, making his debut with Cincinnati Opera in the 2018 season, singing the role of Nero, the Emperor Nero, in Monteverdi's final opera, The Coronation of Popea. We'll be talking about Anthony's long career at a tender age of more than a couple of decades in front of the public, starting out as a boy soprano, a Broadway star when he was barely into his teens, and how opera and being an impresario grabbed hold of him and give him the rich and varied life he has today. Anthony, you told us a wonderful story at the Cincinnati Opera opening gala dinner about how you learned a very unusual piece, at least for your voice, as one of the first songs you ever sang. Tell us, would you tell that story again? I love it. I was um, I was six years old. I was playing piano, and I had a great piano teacher, and she, she sort of acknowledged that I wasn't so great at piano and said, why don't you sing instead? And for whatever reason, she was zany and fun, and she played Gershwin with me, and I sang Summertime, and I loved it so much. I was eight years old by then. I was singing Summertime, and I took it into audition for a local production in North Carolina of The King and I, and that's where it all started. I was bitten by the stage bug, and I've now, this is me celebrating my 25th year of being on stage professionally. So it starts with Broadway, and uh, do you recall at least some of your first impressions of what it was like to be in a show. What are a couple of things in your memory that stick out about first-time discoveries about being on stage? Well, my first professional production was in the Broadway national tour of the show Falsettos. And I remember I was supposed to have a lot of rehearsal and watch shows before I jumped in, but then the person I was coming in to replace got sick. And I realized in that very first experience at 11 years old, that you have to react to what's happening on the stage in real time, that you can't sort of phone it in, you can't have planned every reaction. And that actually makes it engaging and exciting for the audience, and it keeps you interested and engaged in the material. So today, when I'm doing the coronation of Popeye here in Cincinnati, I always make sure to listen to what the other actors are saying on stage, and then say the words that I have to say as if I'm saying them for the first time. Life on the road at the age of 11? It was really incredible to be traveling with this group of artists and experiencing all these different cities, all these different communities, and figuring out how to how to speak to them as an artist. And that's still what I'm committed to, is communicating to people and, and having an impact emotionally on them. Did you travel with a tutor? We had um, equity tutors. It was an equity production. So we had people who would travel with us. They would school us. And I had the great benefit of being at a place in New York called Professional Children's School where they made our curriculum uh, possible to do on the road. So from the very beginning of your acting, singing career, you're on stage. You don't go through any long process of going to an academy of dramatic art or university courses and whatnot. You started by doing 
I did start by doing, but that's not to discount the fact that opera is a very technically complex art form. So, and acting is too. So you build on your instincts mm -hmm. and your experience with technique. What's exciting for me is that technique has always been centered around theater in in the broad sense, what it means to be on stage. And I like the music and the technique to serve the theater rather than some ideal of perfection. So in the days before you, let's say, discover opera, you're obviously around a lot of very accomplished performers. Were you picking up tips like, oh, he does that when he enters the stage, or oh, she does that, that's the bad idea. I mean, both good and bad are things that things you learned early on that you that you remind yourself of today, some of your earliest lessons, as it were? Absolutely. I think being exposed to that high level at a young age, it, it absorbed into me intrinsically. But I remember working when I was 15 years old, making a film with the director, James Ivory, who just won an Oscar this year. And working with him, seeing how he was working with movie stars like Chris Christopherson and Barbara Hershey and Jane Birkin, and seeing how they took his direction, but also they pushed him to understand their perspective and how it was a dialogue. That is where the art was made. And so when people ask me today, you know, what's the best piece of advice you've ever gotten or what advice would you give? It's really that art comes from the relationships that you have. That is how art is made, whether it's the relationship with the audience, with the director, with the company, with anybody. That is the, the temperature of those relationships are really what determines the success of the art. And when you go to do either a, a Broadway show early on in your career or eventually as you transition into opera, those relationships become almost like a family for the time that you are together. And families bicker, and families have good times together, families have romances together, families have separations together. How do you approach the early stages? What, what are some of the things you do as a member of an ensemble early on in a production to either learn or ingratiate yourself or become more uh, connected to your fellow performers? What are I think that's absolutely right. You want to create a sense of community and a sense of company, and you want to understand who people are emotionally, what they're interested in, how what you're doing can play into those interests, and also engage them in who you are so that you can have a, a true kind of chemistry. Um, and in life, in with our partners, we have the luxury of finding someone with whom there's a natural chemistry. But in these situations, you have to be creative in how you generate it. So... You are working in this production, uh, this particular production of Coronation of Popea with someone who's relatively new to the operatic scene. Sarah Schaefer most graciously joined us at rather late notice after Talise Trevina had to withdraw. She will be just fine. But uh, Sarah does not have the long experience that you already have, uh, even at your young age, from being in the theater for 25 years. Um, so... Um, it can be a mentorship relationship as well. What are some of the things that some of the interactions that the two of you have had in the rehearsal process that have been fun for you? Well, I always like to feel like I'm equal with someone, whether they're younger than me or older than me, in some way that we're creating it together as a partnership. And so last night, for example, um, we were talking about this last very famous duet, uh, Portimiro. And the beginning of it is very simple, but somehow the energy wasn't feeling right and wasn't charged. And we both acknowledged that. And I said, you know, 
I think we have to return to it's so famous that we're singing it as a sort of set piece instead of looking at the actual molecules that make it up, which is her saying, I look at you and me saying, I want you. And if we can simply say those words to, to each other and mean them, it will charge the air more and that will create an intensity that we're lacking. And she said, I think that's absolutely right. So I had to sort of step out and try and figure it out with her and try and communicate it in a way um, that I felt would resonate with both of us um, and, and see if it worked. And sometimes people say, mm, you know, I don't, that's not how I feel about it. And then I try and understand what their perspective is and see if I can adjust what I'm doing. You touch on something that is a little bit granular, perhaps, for a conversation like this, but I think it's fascinating to ask someone with deep experience, how do you know in a moment on stage when that special electricity is present? There is something that reads into the even the most neophyte audience member that something special is happening on stage. It's just not another recitation of lines in a play or a melody in a song. There's a kind of tension in the air. It's like the humidity, the sort of emotional humidity goes up. What is that? I think that's absolutely right. There's um, the reason we go to the theater, and often when I talk about it, is to feel the air in the theater because it feels different than listening to something on the radio or watching something on your computer. That charging of the air is something that I think comes with expert performers, however they do it. And I always try and achieve it. I feel like it's a vacuum. You use the silence. You use the suspension of the moment, whether it's dramatic or musical, to sort of create this vacuum in which the audience is not sitting back in their chair and going, ah, that's beautiful, but rather on the edge of their chair, waiting to hear what's going to come next. Because in fact, um, beauty can often be born of invention and of tension and um, of excitement. So I think we have to figure out how to change colors in our voices and in our intention enough to generate that in the audience. I'm sure there are young performers listening to this just getting started in their own careers. And I use a moment from watching one of the rehearsals where you enter a scene uh, well before you're supposed to be part of the scene. It's towards the end of the opera when Drusilla, one of the characters, is being accused of trying to murder the woman you want to be your wife, Popea. And you enter, you climb the parapet, and you stand on top of it, totally still, just observing. But it's the classic, nobody can take their eyes off of you. And it's not like you're trying to steal the scene, but there's an energy in your stillness. Where, how did you learn that? To be, to, as it were, draw people to you when you're not doing anything. Oh, thank you. You're just standing there. Uh, well, there's a wonderful... I was working with the director, Phelan McDermott, and he was telling me about these exercises that Chekhov's son, I think his name is Michael Chekhov, had come up with, where you could do different things while doing nothing on stage. And one of them is called radiating. And it's like you have a little furnace embedded in your chest, and you turn the dial up on that furnace, and you just imagine what that would be like. You know, the heat radiating from your body. And somehow that kind of energetic outpouring registers with an audience. It's very bizarre. Um, it also 
you know, the smallest things on stage read. So if you are standing completely still and you sharply turn your head to the right, the audience all of a sudden keys into you and they only see stillness, but it is in fact that sharp turn that has drawn them to you. So you can do the smallest things, even just uh, pushing your eyes to the side so that they can see the whites on the other side of your eyes, can really uh, define a character, define a dramatic moment. Silence is the same thing, isn't it, in some ways? The way that some performers use silence. I'm remembering our first production of this season is Verdi's La Traviata. And after the party leaves and Violetta is about to begin her famous scene with the recitative strano, strano, it's strange, you know. Um, Our Violetta takes a fairly long time. I would say maybe in real clock time, six or seven seconds, which can be an eternity in the theater. But what she's doing in that moment is drawing the silence. Mm-hmm. Nothing happens. She just stares at the table. Maybe she moves Maybe she moves a glass before she begins to say, without the orchestra, estrano. So you do that too in your performer. You, you work the silence. Did you learn that or did it just come naturally to you? I think it's it's accumulated learning, um, and you you sort of learn how to read an audience. But what I have, what I love about silence and the way that you're describing it, is that it becomes uncomfortable for a moment. The audience almost thinks is something supposed to be happening here, and so instead of shifting in their chair or letting their thoughts wander they're all of a sudden snapped back into awareness. Um, and in that moment, just as they snap into awareness, you take them someplace else. And that's the power of silence, and that's the excitement you can create with it. There's something else you do in your role which I find fascinating, which is, and I'm sorry to make a, a crude analogy, but you're a little bit like the Joe Pesci character in Goodfellas. I forget his character name. But he's this guy who one moment you think you're joking with, and you say one wrong word, and he turns into a homicidal madman. You have a couple of moments in the production where you begin, you're, you're giving the air of being very clement, very generous, very nice, and then all of a sudden the monster comes out. Is this actually written in the text? Is this something that you are overlaying into it to make the performance richer from your conception of Nero? Where does that... Where does that lightning switch between supposed nice guy and total crazy person come? Well, I think that we actually layered that onto the text to illuminate it. And working with Zach Winokur, our wonderful director, we found that. But one thing in thinking about being someone like Nero, entitled, completely, you know, uh, egoistic, and he is used to getting everything he wants at every moment. So in a sense, his body is totally released His uh, affect is devil-may-care in a way and blasé about a lot of things until someone presents him with a piece of information which changes that. And he reacts not rationally but rather as a child would react in a sort of tantrum. So I love creating that um, switchblade shift um, where he receives a piece of information that finally snaps him out of this lackadaisical, you know, um, way of existing 
into violence because, of course, history tells us that he was violent and the libretto furthers that. And, of course, Monteverdi creates this great dissonance by often giving him beautiful things to sing. But what Monteverdi also does is sets it at the top of the range of this kind of singer. So often it can sound piercing or extreme when he gets angry and Monteverdi writes that really beautifully. You started in musical theater. I'm sure you've been asked this question a thousand times, but I've never asked it. How did the opera bug bite? Well, my parents are both psychologists. And so strangely enough, I was doing musical theater and then somebody asked me to audition for Miles in The Turn of the Screw. Now, The Turn of the Screw by Benjamin Britten, based on the Henry James novel, is very psychologically complex. It's about childhood trauma. Are the people who appear ghosts, are they real? There are all sorts of psychological questions. And it was um, at the New Jersey Opera Festival, and my parents and I were in New York City. So we would drive about an hour, and in the car we would discuss the turn of the screw. And I realized that there was so much complexity. I was about 13 years old, but there was so much complexity to what was being represented through the music in terms of the psychology. It connected me to what my parents do. It made me realize the depth of art and the way that opera can almost more easily and uh, more in a more layered way get to what is at the base of human existence. And that's when I thought, well, this is really cool. Uh, my next experience with opera was uh, less than a year later singing The Shepherd Boy in Tosca with Luciano Pavarotti. Now, That's a nice way to start. Don't yeah. start at the bottom, start at the top. <laughs> when, uh, when Pavarotti was taking bows, he he yanked me from backstage and took me on with him for his bow. And there I was, standing with Luciano Pavarotti, holding his hand as the audience screamed. And that was the other extreme of opera. And I thought, well, this is kind of fun. So uh, <laughs> I was hooked. So you start out life, uh, vocally speaking, as a boy soprano. As you reach maturity, your young maturity, you discover, or it is it discovered for you, that this this phenomenon that is really uh, born out of the last only 75 years or so of professional singing, the introduction of the countertenor voice into the world of opera uh, and the revival of Baroque operas using that voice, you discover that this is your voice. Did you do it on your own? Did you have a teacher who said, you know, Anthony, why try to be a baritone or a tenor? You've got something special. Actually, as I was doing The Turn of the Screw, we discovered that I was probably going through puberty then, but I kept singing in this high voice and having parents who never said, oh, you know, being a man is about singing low. They didn't really care. And somebody around the opera world at that point said, maybe you're a countertenor. And, you know, if you've been a successful boy soprano, you don't want to give it up. So I, I thought I'll just keep doing it as long as I can do it. And uh, it... <laughs> You know, I had to fill in some holes in my vocal register and uh, and figure out how it all worked. But I went straight into countertenor from boy soprano, and I've never looked down at the bass clef and considered it very carefully. It's there. It's it's like a television producer friend mine of mine used to call sound. It says, "Oh yeah, that's the noise under the pictures." <laughs> right, <laughs> so right. bass clef is the noise under the pictures for exactly. you. Exactly. So in developing a, uh, a an acoustic countertenor voice, meaning you don't sing with a microphone, generally speaking, in in opera houses, you don't sing with a microphone here. Um, what are some of the things as you have talked to your colleagues and friends who have developed their other voices, sopranos and mezzos and tenors and basses? 
is there is there something unique about the training you went through to, as it were, solidify that countertenor voice? Strangely enough, the answer to that, I think, is no. I think what I do is very similar to what a mezzo-soprano does or even a soprano, which is I sing in my head voice. The only difference is that as a male, our head voice is much farther from our chest voice. And so you have to figure out how to bridge that gap and make the falsetto, which translated from Italian, of course, means false little voice, not so little and not so false. And for me, that's all about how the breath is used and how the resonating spaces are used. And it's the same things that all opera singers are dealing with. You're just looking at it with your own personal physical configuration. And also as a countertenor, the one physiological difference is that we sort of sing on the edge of our chords. And that's like stretching a rubber band and having the pitch go higher, what makes our pitch go higher. So we have to figure out how that approximation or coming together of the vocal chords can be firm and solid even though we're not using the entire chord. And there is one moment, if I recall correctly, in our production, where as you, for emphasis, use your, as it were, tenor voice on one word at the bottom of a phrase, and it's scary as heck. I believe so much in using the quote-unquote chest voice or male mechanism. I think if I went all the way to the bottom of the range and said that word you're speaking of, which is uh, morte or death, something about death, I can't remember off the top of my head, but when he says that, he's so angry. Now, when when Monteverdi was setting that, did he imagine it at the bottom of the head voice range where there's not a lot of power? I don't think so. When you listen to the only existing recording of a castrato, Alessandro Moreschi, um, you hear that he's using his chest voice, almost belting. And so I imagine that these roles that Handel wrote for Julius Caesar, the great traditions of the castrati that we as countertenors sing, that they were not singing these lower middle registers only in head voice because that didn't have the power of a general like Julius Caesar or an emperor like Nero. So we have to mix in, in an intelligent and healthy way, the chest mechanism to color them. I don't think we have to. That's what I like to do mm -hmm. as an artist, to color them, to, to give a different sound when it's required. Uh, you made a, a wonderful, short, and pithy explanation of, obviously, the difference between a castrato and a countertenor. Just the briefest bit of musical history. Castrati are on the rise in the end of the Baroque era, well, the middle to the end of the Baroque era. Uh, it is a result of a horrible medical procedure of boys who had not yet reached puberty but were close to be castrated because that means their voices don't further develop. They stay in that range, but their bodies, the physicality of their bodies grows sometimes out of proportion. I mean, they had, we've seen drawings of the castrati. They had big barrel chests, little tiny spindly legs, funnily enough, and these voices that were trumpets in the soprano range. But to uh, put to bed a yet another misconception, it wasn't because the composers wanted them to sound like women. They wanted to have an unearthly power in a male presence because most of these characters are men. Yeah. 
if not all of them, are men just singing with this incredible power uh, in a high range. Absolutely. And what's fascinating, if not a little bit gruesome about this whole thing, but fascinating is that it is the genesis of opera as we know it. This is, of course, what popularizes opera before we have Verdi and Puccini popularizing it even more. And if we look physiologically at why these barrel chests you mentioned happen, well, it's because the hormonal changes don't allow the bones to harden as much. So the bones are more cartilaginous. And that means the rib cage can expand more, which means a composer like Handel has an extra two inches in the rib cage of air to write with. And so we get these long florid lines from Handel. So when we look at the the primary source material, we can see the physical effects that are unimaginable of this practice and how it really defined the music we now listen to. So how does a mere mortal with uh, all of his parts, so to speak, intact um, uh, in our modern age, uh, creating the same sort of creating the same range that Verdi and that Handel and Porpora and Monteverdi and all of them wrote for uh, without that two extra inches of ribcage? <laughs> it's a good question. It takes a lot of training. The other thing that the Castrati did is as soon as they were castrated, that was their life. So they trained from a very early age. And I think um, like anything, you can change your body with repetition. Um, and so learning how to use your breath, breathing well, using it efficiently when you're singing coloratura, finding the right um, balance between separating the notes so that they're clear and having a smooth and efficient use of breath to get through a long line. These are all things that take years and years and years of work practice, talking with teachers, coaches, all kinds of mentors to help you figure it out. So you just study like mad and yeah. rehearse like crazy. Absolutely. It's the only way. <laughs> there is an interesting dichotomy in the role of the countertenor voice because, of course, for much of the classic period and certainly all of the romantic period of the development of opera, the castrato voice, of course, has fallen out of favor. And as you say, Moreschi, the last castrato, dies in the early years of the 20th century. Um, and the revival of interest in the countertenor voice doesn't happen until, let's say, after the Second World War. So you have this enormous Baroque repertoire, and then the world today is your oyster. And you have really maximized both ends of the spectrum. But I have a feeling that um, not that I would ever ask you to make a choice, but you have made such an impact in contemporary music. How did you discover, um, the, as it were, the, the richness of that repertoire? Or, and how are you adding to the richness of that repertoire? Well, you know, as I said, relationships are what inspire me the most. And so I found at an early age that working with composers, living composers who were changing the music to accommodate your voice, or you were developing ideas together, choosing texts and libretti together. That was such an exciting creative opportunity. And that informed me about what it must have been like for Mozart working with his singers, writing roles for them. So one practice informs the other, and in turn, the composers I was working with said, what repertoire from the Baroque do you sing, and how should I treat your voice in this music? So really getting to make the two things speak to each other, and when I was approached to make my first album, which I've just recorded for Decca Gold, and it comes out in September, I said, oh, you know, I've got to do half of the album as Handel and half as Philip Glass music. And wow. I put these two composers together, and I realized that Handel 
is in many ways the proto-minimalist that Philip Glass is. You know, he is somebody who is looking at repetition, taking repetition of text, repetition of form, and uh, making it transcend. And Philip Glass does the same thing, but in his own way. So there are all these links between the old and new repertoire that are exciting to me. But more than anything, the countertenor voice can represent something very human, but also something very otherworldly. There are lots of ways for it to be employed almost as an extended technique by composers looking to diversify their writing. And I've worked now with many composers, I would say uh, over 20, um, singing world premiere operas, premiering their song cycles, creating works together. Um, And that has really defined who I am as an artist. Within the space of one season, you created at least two brand new operatic characters, who both of whom stole the show. I was at both performances. I, I that's my opinion. One of them was in Jimmy Lopez's opera Bel Canto, where you play one of the revolutionaries who are holding all of these people captive in the embassy. But in the second act, if I remember correctly, um, you are given the opportunity to climb all the way on top of a ladder and sing a song about how you learned how to sing from the birds, um, and. How did that how did that aria come about? Was this you and Jimmy Lopez, the composer, saying, I think you need a number or and and this so near perfect song about how you found your voice as the character. How did it come about? Well, it's funny you should ask. You know, Jimmy Lopez um, knew that I was going to play this role in Bel Canto, but hadn't written the opera yet. And he came to see a performance of mine in San Francisco. And we went out afterwards and had a drink. And um, we had such a great time. And he was about to get married. And and late in the evening, after pro- probably too many drinks, he said, I know I just met you. And I know this is kind of crazy. But if I wrote you a piece of music, would you sing at my wedding? And I said, yes, I would, because you seem great. And, you know, I would love to be a part of that. So in writing that, and in getting to know me and who I was, again, it informed what he wanted to do with my voice in the opera, with my role. And then he created something for me that really spoke to who I was and what our relationship was. And and that furthers my point that relationships are really what creates great art. You know what I mean? That's how these things happen. And that's what's very exciting to relive when we look back at history and, and these old pieces and also to create as artists now. And you create such a wonderful sense of vulnerability, the kind of thing that a great drama does reveal that someone on the surface, the character is someone wielding a submachine gun and lording it over all of these people. But when that moment comes to learn who the real person behind it is, it's incredibly touching. Well, thank you. Well, and the other one is equally touching in a different way. And it speaks to something that those of us who work in the theater know is so true is that so often the stage manager in a production is extremely important. He or she keeps everything together, knows all of what's going on both in the rehearsal room and maybe outside of the rehearsal room. He or she has to be like Erda. (laughs) So we're all-knowing, all-seeing. And yet, if you were to ask most performers, what's the color of the stage manager's eyes, they can't tell you. Right. He created this beautiful, Jake Heggie and his opera Great Scott created this beautiful character for you. Did you work with Jake on developing this as well? Or did he just give this to you and say, what do you think? Actually, the librettist, Terrence McNally, um, 
and I got together because Jake Heggie said he'd seen me at the Met performing. He said, I want you to do this role, but we're still defining what the role is. So meet with Terrence McNally. And we got together and we hung out and Terrence said, who are you? You know, what's your story? And he built the character around me, which is so fascinating. Um, They actually combined several characters. They were going to have different characters into my character to sort of unify it Um, in that particular opera that uh, sort of is a backstage story. There's no director, you'll notice, because the director got put into the stage manager, basically. Um, Uh. And so they combined all this stuff and and they took who I was and they figured out a way in. And so again and again, we returned to when you collaborate with artists, they want to represent a human being uh, on stage, um, and that's what illuminates the piece. Your energy knows no bounds, Anthony. We were speaking the other day at a wonderful brunch uh, to honor our guests in this production uh, about something that you've wound up getting yourself into that you simply have to talk about because it's so unbelievable. You can't make this stuff up. But you're about to go to Japan and perform again as the first Westerner to ever perform in a kabuki theater production. How did it happen? It's amazing. You know, um, I was at the Met Opera and there was a man in rehearsal observing rehearsals. And I said, who is that? And nobody knew. And I just went and talked to him. And he turned out to be one of the most famous writers for Kabuki in Japan. And I was fascinated by that. So I said, let's have lunch. Tell me about it. We uh, went out together to lunch many times over two years. And finally, I said, I'm so fascinated. I've never been to Japan. What I, you know, I can't afford to just go myself and explore. So what if we made a show together that somehow fused kabuki and and opera? And he said, well, how would that work? And I said, well, here's how I think it could work. Every time there's an emotional moment in the kabuki play, it could open up into an aria that was written around the same time as this kabuki play, 1600, 1650. The heart of your Baroque repertoire. The heart of my Baroque repertoire. So we proposed this to the biggest kabuki company in Japan, Shochiku. We did it. We created it. I chose all the music. I worked with them on the script. Uh, We sold 26,000 tickets in 2014 in Kyoto. And now it goes to the biggest kabuki theater in Japan, um, Kabuki-za. And we will do 23 performances for 2,000 people a night um, in July. And it's a fascinating window into a culture and into an art form that is incredibly popular, even though it's classical in Japan. And so for me to study that, for me to see how these performers engage their audiences in a totally different way, well, that gives me so much more material to build on, different ways to create those silences, to engage the audiences that I have, and to deepen my practice. It opens another door in your incredibly busy life because you also have been and continue to be something of an impresario yourself. Where do you find the time? Oh, thank you. Well, the key is just making the time. As you well know, um, it's it's exciting for me rather than to go home and decompress, to go home and be engaged in future projects, in creating them, in fundraising for them. And when I got out of college, um, my first job to support myself while I was trying to get money for grad school and live in New York City was I luckily got asked to be the executive director of a dance company for a choreographer, Carol Armitage. And so for two years, my job was 
raise the money. I had to raise $3 million um, to write the grants, to be the company manager, to plan the gala, to do everything you can imagine. So all the press, all the marketing. So now when I come to an opera company, I feel as if, of course, I've not spent years doing each person's job, but I did spend two years touching on all of these positions, and I have some insight into that. I have some understanding of what it takes, and uh, I find it exciting. So um, being an impresario and my own CEO or administrator is something that is thrilling enough to me to warrant, you know, staying up until 1 a.m. writing those emails so that they arrive in Japan by the time they get up. You've also affiliated yourself with a wonderful new project called the American Modern Opera company, right? Yes. It's a collective. It's uh, the composer Matt O'Coin, our director here, Zach Winokur, yourself, uh, soprano Julia Bullock, bass Devon Tynes, two wonderful dancers from Israel. I mean, a whole collective of basically the future of several art forms. How did this come about? I love, by the way, the acronym AMUK. <laughs> AMUK, the American <laughs> Modern Opera Company. Well, you know, um, I've known Zach Winokur, this director, since he was 15 years old, believe it or not, because he danced for the company of which I was the executive director. So uh, that's how I first met Zach. And from Dancer, uh, through our our time together he, and also his own interests, he got more and more engaged in opera, and he's become one of the best directors of opera today. Then I got to know Matt O'Coin, this really bright light in our world of opera and new music, conductor, pianist, you know, and, of course, composer. Um, and I introduced Matt and Zach, and they um, were a sort of – they grew up right near one another and almost crossed paths but hadn't in their professional lives yet. And they hit it off so much intellectually that they had this idea that we all want to do. Everyone involved wants to have a say in where opera is going. How is this art form going to remain relevant, continue to engage audiences and engage different audiences? It was created as an interdisciplinary art form. Ballet began within opera, and opera engaged designers like fashion designers to make costumes and, and set designers, artists. Well, how do we see that in our age today? How do we continue that tradition but push it forward? That's what Amuk is trying to do, redefine things, reimagine things, but have some of the greatest artists that we have, young artists who are recognized in their field already, do it together. So it's not like an old-fashioned commune of the time in which I was a teenager where everybody gets together on a farm and doesn't bathe often enough and eats bad food and communes with nature. This is a group of very seriously dedicated professionals who have busy lives throughout the year, but you carve out time, arbitrarily carve out several weeks out of the year to work as a team. That must be a scheduling nightmare. It is a scheduling nightmare. <laughs> but I think what we believe is that while it's wonderful, the, the traditional model, the one thing that it lacks when you're making an opera is you get into a room with brand new people and the director hasn't worked with most of them or they haven't worked together. There's something different when the community already exists in terms of the pace and the, the quality with which you can innovate. I think it's different than making a production when you're trying to innovate in the form. You want a band, and what we are essentially is a rock band in the form of an opera company. Amazing. I wish you very well for it. I know you've already had a couple of residencies at Harvard, and you have this annual retreat, as it were, in the most beautiful Sylvan setting in Vermont. I expect to be hearing a lot of things run amok 
in the future. <laughs> yes, you will for sure. Now, another, uh, as it were, arrow in your quiver is a newly minted television personality. You've now hosted your first Met HD broadcast. What was it like being the host for Louisa Miller on the Met? Oh, it was so nerve-wracking. I mean, you can't imagine. I'd never read a teleprompter before and I actually didn't get to try until the day of the HD. Uh, and they want you to walk while reading, which is harder than it seems somehow. Um, but what I realized about the HD very quickly, and this is my take on it, is that your main role, yes, you host, you throw to the next segment, you do that. But the thing people are most inter interested in is these interviews with the performers. And the performers have just walked off stage, adrenaline pumping. We are live in front of 500,000 people across the world. My job is to look them in the eye, not to read the teleprompter behind their head with the questions on it, but to look them in the eye and let them know we are having a conversation. And that is what puts them at ease. That's what gets the best answers out of them. That's what makes it fun for the audience. So once I learned that, I thought, oh, I know how to do this. I know how to talk to people, how to communicate with artists. And then it became incredibly fun. So there was my favorite moment was with Sonia Yoncheva, who had walked off. And I said to her, um, so this character is a very strong, strong woman. Is that is that who you are? Does it come naturally to you? Do you have to work on it? And she said, well, you know, I, uh, I am strong, yes, but sometimes in life I, I like to also be a little bit girl. And I said, I know, me too. And it happened spontaneously. Um, but all of a sudden the cameramen were laughing and she was laughing and I thought... This is this is what it should be. And um, luckily, uh, Mr. Gelb did not take issue with it, but rather was very happy that we were having fun with the format. Um, and we got a great response from the audience. So it was a real thrill for me. And I think the first being the first countertenor who's ever hosted an HD was a great honor. And I, I'm presuming you did it well enough to get reinvited. I mean, the, you know, the. A second engagement is the the, the absolute litmus test for sure. Absolutely, well, I'm very excited for things to come. Anthony, when uh, we have these chances to sit with visitors to our studios, we always ask them the same questions at the very end. So if you wouldn't mind subjecting yourself to our uh, list of regular questions, you can demure from any one of them if you find them either inappropriate or you simply don't have an answer for it. Great. What did you have for breakfast today? Well, it's funny. I didn't have very much in my fridge, so I had to make do. And I went in a kind of Japanese savory breakfast direction. I poached an egg and I had some oatmeal. Uh, so like kanji, I put that together with a little soy sauce and put the poached egg in it. And it was very good. My God, that's like the Japanese. There's what is it? Um, sometimes the Japanese that with rice as well. Yep. Rice, a poached egg, soy sauce and a little sesame seed. Exactly. So you had a good Japanese working man's breakfast. Indeed. Fantastic. What books are, or magazines are you reading right now? Well, I love The New Yorker, and I'm uh, you know, addicted to it, so I brought a couple of copies. Of course, I'm like everybody in the world, six issues behind or whatever. Me too. <laughs> so I brought my copies of The New Yorker. Um, but uh, I just received a new book in the mail, which I'm going to take on the plane to Japan, called Less, which won the Pulitzer this year, which I'm really excited about. And I've just read... Um, uh, two plays that I loved, one uh, by Sarah Rule, which Matt O'Coin is setting in, as his new commission for the Met, which is Eurydice the Opera, and uh, one play by a woman named Jenny Schwartz called God's Ear, which is so surreal but fascinating. Hmm. 
Um, any television programs you watch, either on good old-fashioned terrestrial TV or on your computer? Well, um, I I have been watching old reruns of The Iron Chef. I'm obsessed with cooking. And so going to Japan, the original Iron Chef, not the Food Network uh, remake, but the, the one that took place in Japan, is high camp of the, of the greatest order. So it is so much fun to watch them uh, do that. And it's a throwback to the 90s. Any telephone app in particular that you find very useful? Well, of course, I have my um, mini keyboard, which serves me very well in dressing rooms where there are no piano and uh, getting my pitch for, especially when I'm doing contemporary operas, occasionally I'll actually have my phone in the wings, get my pitch, and then walk out on stage with that in my mind so I can uh, more slightly approximate the atonal <laughs> composition. <laughs> I'm, I've noticed you at rehearsals grabbing a bite to eat from time to time because Rehearsals are intense and they take all day and all evening sometimes and don't leave you much time for, for restaurants. But any restaurant that you've been to in particular or repeatedly that you've enjoyed while you've been in Cincinnati? Well, we really love Salazar's. We seem to keep going back there. It is so delicious. It's really inventive. They have a carrot cake for dessert with actually, I think they caramelize peas and it's like a peas and carrot. Oh, I mean, fun. they're very creative, but always delicious. Um, so we love it there. Um, you spoke a little bit earlier about career advice, uh, career advice rather, and mentors. Is there a, a particular piece of advice that you go back to from time to time that you've gotten? My mother, I think, actually gave me the best advice when I was young, um, and it was a simple maxim that I found very useful because I would get nervous, um, as all performers do, and I still do all the time. And she would say, "Don't be nervous. Be natural." And it's very simple, but when I stand on the side of the stage, I often say that to myself because feeling natural and feeling in your own self is generally what leads to good performances. A favorite musician outside of classical music? Well, you know... Uh, I hate to be cliche about this, but since Beyonce just uh, launched her new album and amazing music video in the Louvre um, uh, last week, I have to say she really is a great singer. She writes incredible music and she markets herself in an incredible way. And all of the video artists she com com uh, uh, collaborates with and designers, I think she's a, a fully formed and 360 kind of artist. And I love that about her. How do you deal with stress? Um, when I get really stressed out, I find the best thing is to cook a complicated meal. Uh, because when you invite 15 people for dinner and you have five courses planned, there is no room to think about what you're stressed out uh, with. You just have to chop those six onions into tiny little dices. So that's my best way to uh, deal with stress. It's much better than kicking the cat. Exactly. Much better. Um, You've, it seems as though a lot of people have offered you wonderful advice over the years and uh, mentored you. But is there, is there someone in particular whom you think about often still who was there from the very beginning and someone you still rely on, even if you're not in contact anymore, but someone who you know, stands out in your memory is important? I'm, I'm very lucky that my voice teacher, who's a sort of 
wonderful, brilliant, and idiosyncratic figure, Joan Patton O'Diarnell, I began studying with when I was 16 years old. So it's been over 20 years. I call her for everything, and she's still there. Similarly, the director, James Ivory, whom I met when I was 15 years old, is someone I talk to almost weekly and who just filmed a music video for one of the tracks on my album. So he's had a real role in developing my dramatic voice, and Joan has had a real role in developing my musical voice. And those are two people who for over 20 years have been by my side. So Anthony Roth Costanzo, complete performer from the very beginning. Uh, let's hope so, and, and, and still completing himself daily. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you, Evans. Thanks for listening. For more information about Cincinnati Opera, please go to cincinnatiopera.org. And please do subscribe to this podcast. For Cincinnati Opera, I'm Evans Mirages. <laughs>